What are you most looking forward to about becoming a father? Becoming a father. <laughs> <laughs> All of the joys that come with having having children and family. Like everybody else that has children, I'm... I want the big Christmas table, or the, the long Christmas table with everybody around it, and and I want to do the family holidays that I've grown up doing. I, I guess there's sort of part of me that wants to, to replicate that of what I had growing up because I was very fortunate in, in my upbringing as well. My name is Dane, and I'm a queer woman living on Wadarung country. I work as the Regional Community Engagement Coordinator for Midsummer, and I'm very proud to be part of the team who brought Pride Finder to life. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the lands on which this podcast episode was recorded, the Breikalung lands of the Gunai Kurnai Nation, and pay my respect to Elders past and present. I would also like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the various lands on which you live, work and play today, and acknowledge that sovereignty has never been ceded. We recognise the important role that art has played on these lands for thousands of years and feel privileged to work alongside artists continuing the creative practice of one of the oldest surviving cultures in the world. Always was, always will be. The episode you're about to hear is with Nathan, a gay man who grew up in the Latrobe Valley. He shares his story of growing up and taking a six-year-long gap year while working as a flight attendant to see the world. Nathan and his husband Ian are also growing their family through surrogacy, and in this episode he shares some of the struggles they've faced and the decisions they've had to make on the road to becoming fathers. Let's get to know Nathan. My name is Nathan. I identify as he, him. I'm gay and live here in Warrigal. I've grown up here in the Latrobe Valley for the most part of my life. Um, I had a brief stint in Melbourne uh, for about six years as a flight attendant before realising that uh, Melbourne was unaffordable. So I moved back here for the great quality of life as well as the affordability of living regional. How was it coming back after six years in Melbourne? interesting. Um, I left the area for some not uncertain reasons uh, when I turned 18. I was very quick to leave. Coming back to Warrigal though, it was sort of halfway towards the Latrobe Valley where I grew up and I still had that accessibility to the city, um, yet I still had a great standard of living here in Warrigal. So for the most part it was a very good experience and um, for those things that I felt that I missed, I wasn't far from Melbourne. Who were you a flight attendant for? For Tiger Air, for yeah. six years. I okay. left as a cabin manager for the best parts of the years that they were in operation. Mm. It was a brilliant job. Yeah. I loved it, and particularly working for Tiger. We came home every night, so I didn't have to live out of a suitcase. I had all the glory of being a flight attendant, but the stability of somebody who, who worked a nine-to-five job, mm. I felt. So you've said you've lived an interesting life, so I'm intrigued. <laughs> yes. Well, um, after my few years as a flight attendant in Melbourne, I met my now husband Ian and we've been married for a couple of years now. Um, have some pretty brash goals in my life. One of those is to see 30 countries by the age of 30 and I'm 29 at the moment and I've been to 27 of them. Mm. So I've got um, the best part of a year left to see a few more countries now. Um, Ian and I got married through the, the COVID pandemic. Um, we had a small ceremony of seven guests <laughs> in the, the height of the pandemic, which was fantastic. 
But um, Ian also lives abroad. He actually lives in Singapore. Mm -hmm. So he moved over for employment just before the COVID pandemic hit. And being an ex-flight attendant, I was going to be commuting a lot to seeing him. But um, but him uh, being in Singapore and a Muslim country, I couldn't stay. So even if I did want to, I could only visit, essentially. So fast forward that, um, Ian moved to Singapore to um, work for a little bit of extra money because we're um, currently engaged in surrogacy through South America at the moment. And uh, we're very pleased to say that we're um, expecting uh, two children born in May and August, respectively. Ah, oh, that's exciting. Hmm. Has that been a long journey, long process? Started before COVID as well. Okay. Um, so we're a little over nearly three and a half years into the process now and are only 23 weeks and and nine weeks pregnant. So it's been a very long journey to get to where we are. Um, COVID had its, its setbacks um, but we also had a series of unfortunate events throughout that process as well that sort of delayed that process, unfortunately. Did you know that you always wanted to be a dad? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And how does it feel that you're about to be that? Very becomer? exciting. Um, I'm very blessed. I have a lot of familial support within my own home network as well as friend network. So um, the prospect of multiple births is, is perhaps the most daunting part, if any, but um, but having always known that I wanted to have a family and kids and, and, and grow up in a very close-knit uh, secular setting, I'm super excited for what's yet to come. Mm. So did you choose to have the two at the same, like coming in close together? Yes. Yeah. Um, surrogacy arrangements, particularly commercial surrogacy arrangements, uh, there is a small cost benefit to doing multiple births, and that is that they only would generally have to go through the egg harvest and fertilisation process once, as opposed to having uh, two individual children through two arrangements. So yes, we took on a double guaranteed journey <laughs> up front about three years ago, and it's only coming to yeah, fruition now. We're also contracted for another child in Mexico, a third child, um, which is quite a long story as to how that came to be. But at the moment, it's the process has been halted until later this year when we will start again yeah. for a third child. Wow, you'll just, yeah, all the lessons of parenthood will come at once. Yes. <laughs> and where did you meet your husband? We met online. Um, as a flight attendant, I didn't have the, the greatest social life, as you could imagine, uh, working late nights and weekends and every public holiday um, doesn't really leave you much time for letting your hair down and socialising. So, yes, we met online. Uh, he was working in a very labour-intensive role as well, so he was... Um, stuck for time as well so we met each other um, he came over to my house and the rest is really history I think we've spent a couple of nights apart with the exception of, of uh, Singapore Tell me about growing up in Oregon how was it for you? So I didn't grow up in Warrigal. Oh. I grew up in the Latrobe Valley, which okay. is a little bit, a little over half an hour down the road from here. Growing up in uh, very much a blue-collar town, 
there were certain expectations that um, they certainly um, were those of the heteronormative kind, that that's essentially how you would grow up and, and raise your family. A lot of the people within the area as well seem to stay in that area as well, with their home bases being there. I fortunately had quite a good experience um, in the regional setting. Um, grew up in a Catholic education school system as well and, and didn't find that that was all that traumatic for me. I think the worst thing about growing up in the regional setting was finding a sense of identity um, when there's not many people to bounce off. Um, I didn't know many gay people while I was growing up and those that were within my immediate reach, i.e. school or work, um, perhaps weren't the most outgoing with their sexuality at that age as well. So when you're coming to an age where you're trying to find that identity in yourself and who you are as a person and not having anybody to role model off, you sort of revert back to those heteronormative ideals in your mind and in turn it creates a conflict. So I found that um, I struggled a lot within myself around that age of 14 and 15 feeling like I needed to conform to the heteronormative type and, and knowing that that wasn't the case. My family uh, at first weren't the most supportive. Um, again, very blue collar. And um, I was very fortunate, though, that they realised very quickly that if they didn't adapt and accept, then they would lose me and they weren't prepared to do that. So as tough as it was for a short period of time, we did come out the other end um, flourished, flourishing as a family. Oh, oh that's amazing. So they're mm. here, they're still here as well? They are. When mm. I moved to Melbourne, they moved halfway closer to Melbourne. So when I came back, they're in this area now as well. So, mm. so how was that for you to just know that you've, you know, your family had your back? It was a good feeling. Mm. It was, I don't think they necessarily understood it as much as they accepted it. It would have been easier if I had perhaps some stronger role models to, to sort of have and and teach my family as well. I felt like I was the teacher as well as the student. Just big, it's a big responsibility for you, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, look, it's it's been still a good experience, though, with my family. So you didn't really have a particular role model or an influence that helped you? Not really. Mm. I found as I struggled with my sexuality through the school years, it really took a toll on my mental health. Um, I found myself... Um, with a generalised anxiety disorder diagnosis at a young age, uh, frequently had panic attacks, um, which was unfortunate and perhaps just symptomatic of, of the stresses. The one thing that I did find solace in, though, was the Headspace network. And at the time, there was a fantastic drop-in centre in Morwell that I ended up frequenting and, um, and sought mental health services to sort of get me through that, that school period. It did take a toll on my education as well, though. I mean, I do say that the years that I was a flight attendant, that was a gap year. And six years later, I was still in the uh, in that gap year. I had no intent of tr studying after the traumatic time that I'd sort of had at school as a result. But um, after all of that, I found that the Headspace Network, as well as those that were there to help me with my mental health, were perhaps the, the greatest role models that I did have. They were the ones that sort of understood as much as, as any one individual can that's not experiencing it. And, you know, same thing, heterosexual, um, 
mental health uh, workers, such as counsellors and, and psychologists, they have a good understanding, but still not a practical working knowledge. That's mm. okay. Having that time away from this area and coming back, what are the improvements that have that you have seen that have been made to support people who are coming out? In all honesty, I can't say there have been that many improvements, to be perfectly honest. Um, my understanding is the Headspace Centre that I fell in love with and, and that helped me a lot is no longer in Morwell. That's very disappointing. Um, this particular area that we are in now identifies quite a, a right-wing conservative area, although the most recent census results would have you believe otherwise, which is quite funny. Um, we find that there is... Uh, a very right-wing uh, political landscape, but the religion has sort of left the area um, with uh, the most predominant religion in the area of no religion. Mm, okay. Being in a conservative place, how does how does that feel to live? It suits me because I don't necessarily stand out. I have a mantra in life that I my goal after coming out was to blend in. And, and that's not through any means of self-preservation. It is a personal preference that in my life I wanted to have anything that anybody else could have without any fear of judgment. So when I walk down the street, I feel like I look like any other individual in the street and, and I don't have anybody who are questioning me as a result of my sexuality or judging me as a result of my sexuality. Do you think that's going to be something that these kind of areas will be more exposed to? Like people will be able to walk down the street and no matter what they look like and how they present, are we a long way away from that in this particular region? I think we're always moving forward mm -hmm. as the learnings filter down through the education system to the new generations and then in turn the new generations teach the older ones and as they grow up they teach the new generations the new way of thinking. I think we're in that cycle still of filtering uh, that we may see changes come, not necessarily fast. Um, I think the next confronting thing for me when talking about blending in will be when I walk down the street with my children in a pram and what people think of me then. I think that will be my next test. And I'm not concerned by that because I have every right to be there <laughs> as well. And I have not ever experienced any outward aggression towards me for for any reason, I guess, within this area. Mm. What are you most looking forward to about becoming a father? Becoming a father. <laughs> <laughs> All of the joys that come with having having mm. children and family. Mm. Like everybody else that has children, yeah. I'm, I want the big Christmas table, or the, the long Christmas table with everybody around it and... And I want to do the family holidays that I've grown up doing. I, I guess there's sort of part of me that wants to, to replicate that of what I had growing up because I was very fortunate in, in my upbringing as well. Mm. So when will your husband come over to join you? Will that be soon? It should be. Yeah. He's currently seeking employment opportunities back here in Melbourne at the moment. Um, it was a, a termed contract that was due to finish at the middle of next year that would see him return, but at the same time, we perhaps might want to expedite that process and uh, and have him home sooner rather than later. Either way, he'll travel with me to Colombia in May. The first one is born in May mm -hmm. and the next one will be born in August, yeah? Mm -hmm. Will you stay there for...? Yes, so we'll be there for the best part of five and a half months mm -hmm. at an estimation. The exit process out of these countries is a little bit tedious. Um, 
So our children will be born with Colombian nationality and within the first few weeks they'll be given Colombian birth documents and a Colombian passport. We will then have to apply to the Australian government for citizenship by descent for them to travel back to Australia as citizens because Colombians don't have free travel arrangements with Australia. So we would either have to get them a visa or citizenship and that process takes about the same amount of time. So we may as well seek citizenship by descent while we're there and our children will travel home as Australian citizens. Now that process, yeah, taking about 10 weeks post-birth then puts us into the realms of when the second child is due. So we will perhaps stay there that whole time mm. and, um, and be there until the very end. What did it take to find out how you could navigate this process and, and make this possible? It's very challenging, particularly because the political landscapes around the world change so frequently. And a lot of the self-education that we had sought out to, to find out how we could do this um, was perhaps already obsolete by the time we'd come to it. And then also realising that a lot of countries around the world don't support same-sex couples throughout these journeys. So we did seek out a consultant and that consultant um, pointed us in the right direction towards the agency that we're now using in both Colombia and Mexico for our children. Yeah. What would you say to other people who are seeking to become parents? What do, what do they need to prepare for? There are, there's more than one way to skin a cat. <laughs> um, those looking to do it on the domestic market, if you don't already have a person that is willing to be your donor, perhaps, or your surrogate, um, be prepared for a very lengthy experience. Um, you can go through commercial surrogacy arrangements in North America, both Canada and the United States offer them, but they're both expensive and time consuming. And you can seek services in South America that are less time consuming and, and less costly, but then you have to contend with the, the dynamics of the potentially un unstable political landscapes. So up until a couple of weeks ago, we thought we were very home and hosed with Colombia. We did receive an email from our agency, the state, that there are some bills that are being put forward to their government at the moment to see that before you go through a commercial surrogacy arrangement in Colombia, you may need to live in the country for at least three years. And the letter that we received also said, that's okay. Generally, the government don't apply these rules retrospectively and um, you should be okay. But that's always sitting there in the back of our mind that um, at the drop of a hat, something could change and the wall could be pulled from out, out from under us, um, as we have seen before in the likes of India and Thailand um, in more recent years. Okay. Well, that would be pretty unsettling. And it is. Mm -hmm. it's a, it takes a lot of faith to, to keep your morale up throughout these processes. A lot of faith, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Is, it, is the Australian government likely to cause any... Um, roadblocks when you seek? Looking online, um, it's the, the Australian government will, will provide any support as they would for anybody having children overseas. So at that, that part, um, there's no real risk. Mm. However, if you do a little bit of a deeper dive into it, there are certain states in Australia that prohibit commercial surrogacy arrangements outside of Australia, including the likes of New South Wales. It's a criminal offence to do that and you run the risk of, uh, of being... Um, 
caught at the airport on arrival with your newborn and being criminally charged for these sorts of offences. It's it's crazy to even think that that exists. I don't think these laws necessarily are generally tried. I don't think that we see Australians returning home. In fact, our agent that we're going through at the moment is also a customer of the journey from New South Wales. And well, he hasn't told me he's been charged yet. So I'm assuming that's a good thing. Mm. Did you consider doing this locally in within Australia? We looked at it, but it was um, far too constrained for us to go through. So we when we went through the consultant, the consultant explained the process for, for how it would be in Australia if you didn't have an egg donor or a surrogate that was prepared to offer their support for you. The arrangement is altruistic, meaning that the that neither party can benefit as a result of, of these arrangements. Um, both the egg donor and the surrogate would also already have to have an, a family and establish that they have no intentions of increasing their family. From there, if you hadn't found a person who was already fitting those boxes, you would generally have to find them through means of networking. So social media pages set up um, for those who are willing to offer their services on both side. Um, throughout that process, you would have a period of courting with any individual until they reach out and say, well, perhaps I, I would like to offer you my services. You would meet them, you would get to know them. Um, some time can pass um, and these circumstances can change at any time. So throughout this process, once you're investing all your time and energy into finding somebody that could change, once you do finally come to an agreement with a person and, and realise that they want to, to do this for you, you have the medical expenses through the private hospital system that you need to pay. You need to pay counselling and legal representation for both sides of the, the parties involved. Um, throughout all of the constraints, by the time you end up at the end of the arrangement, you may also find that this person perhaps wants to to still remain involved in your child's life, um, perhaps in an auntie-like mm-hmm. position. We decided that because of all of that, because of the costs attributed in Australia and, and the risks that somebody would wish to remain involved, um, the fact that afterwards the parties can also renege on their offer and um, being an altruistic agreement, um, they have every right to. We found that it was too risky as well for us to proceed in Australia. What are your hopes for future generation of LGBTQIA plus people in regional areas? I hope that they find the acceptance both within themselves and from a community perspective. I would, looking back to myself in the past and how I would like my time to have been again, I would like to have had those role models that I could look forward, look towards for for support and help. I think as well it was also quite daunting at the time. Those that were out and proud in the community and, and good for them were the types that were Flamboyant. Those that are the types of people who who are happy to put their name in the spotlight was uh, were the ones that were there crusading, and they've done a brilliant job to get us to where we are today. They're not the types of people that I personally find myself to look like, and that's okay. I think, like I said, wanting to blend in. I think we, there's a little bit of a, a difference in the way we both look and act. 
and I would like to see more people out there within the mental health networks, within the school systems that are perhaps your average Joe Blow that, that looks more like the rest of the community to say, hey, you can have a normal life, whatever normal may be. Mm-hmm. I've been asking this question to everybody who's been in the studio so far. Mm-hmm. Um, what does pride mean to you? For me, pride isn't about standing out and and speaking up. Pride for me is is absolutely a self-goal or a self-motivation. Pride is to be happy within myself and that's all it has to be, just happy, happy about my life, happy about the way my life is going and and being good at what I do, I guess. Mm, and what is it that you do? Well, I work here at this very beautiful regional theatre, yes, so I work in the, um, in the box office here and I have a lovely job um, watching all the theatre shows come and go. What do you love most about living in this community? Community spirit is, is very big down here because the community is, is quite small geographically. We find that there are a lot, there's a lot of connectedness within our community. I can walk down to the supermarket and see people that I know and smile and, and keep on my merry way. I think within these communities there, are, there is an absolute treasure trove of, of experiences to find but it's also living comfortably as well. I don't find that I'm stuck shoulder to shoulder in Melbourne anymore with tiny backyards the size of this very booth. Mm, so having space. <laughs> There's space and, to grow, space yeah. to live, space to experience. Yeah. And in a great community of generally like-minded people. Mm. And having that space for your children to grow up in and mm-hmm. have that same upbringing that you had, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so with your travelling, and you said you've been to, what's 27 That's it. countries? And your goal is 30. What <laughs> three countries have you got remaining? <laughs> well, uh, Colombia is one of them. Oh, yes. So we, yeah. um, we actually started this whole process with surrogacy without actually having set foot in, in the country. Um, we will only receive visas upon entry into Colombia for 90 days. So throughout our five and a half months, we will have to leave the country. And I'm very fortunate to have a great network of friends across the world, including one that lives nearby in, in Belize. So Belize will be one of the countries. Colombia will be one of the countries. And um, we've been suggested Puerto Rico while we're in the Central American region. Beautiful. Yes. Yeah. So when did you start travelling? How old were you? 18. Okay. Yes. I took my mum on her first international holiday at oh. 18 and it was my first international holiday. Where did and you go? Bali, of course, oh, yeah. <laughs> as as a bogan Australian would. <laughs> yes, Bali was the first, and um, and then we've travelled a lot throughout Asia, um, North America. Um, I did a half world cruise a couple of years ago that took me through some absolutely amazing polka dot countries on the planet. So yeah, two months yeah. at sea was fantastic. Oh wow! But uh, yes, love cruising, love travel in general. Mm. Mm. Love eating, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> eating different kinds of foods and yes. stuff. Well, is there anything else that you would like to share in terms of sharing your story? Um, I think surrogacy is the big, big factor in my life at the moment. And um, and that takes up the vast majority of my, my spare thoughts at the moment. But um, I think that's a, it's a great experience mm. within the um, LGBTQI plus community for me to be privileged enough to experience. Mm. 
yes, understanding that not everybody does have that um that opportunity. Is it something that when you met your partner, it was a conversation that happened early that do you want to be a parent? And absolutely, setting those expectations um, from the get go when we when we uh, got together was that yes, we both wanted family and we shared that common interest, which is fantastic. Yeah. Did you have a particular number of children that you wanted initially? Well, I'm one of three children and Ian is one of five children, so we always said we wanted four, but um, the surrogacy journey has taken its toll on us, uh, both financially um, and from a relationship perspective, having Ian have to work abroad to be able to afford this process. Uh, So far, we've spent well over $200,000 to get to where we are now. We still owe the best part of $100,000 and we'll have to support ourselves for nine months abroad um, and that's just to get home with our children then over the last few years we've also had to purchase all of the baby equipment and and everything to to get by um, so understanding that the ability to come up with those funds um, is a challenge for anybody let alone to do it three times over in short period wow yes. that's phenomenal really isn't it i think anybody who identifies as two biological males will understand that there's a tax for not having the working body parts for that. Um, those that are in in same-sex couples with um, functioning female organs have it a little bit better in the sense that they can they can really take that journey on and do it for themselves. I would like to see it more accessible in Australia with less constraints, but I would also like to see Australia offer commercial arrangements like the North American. Um, countries do, as well as the South American ones that we're engaged with. It would be great to see that people can put themselves forward and expect to seek some form of compensation for it. Mm. I look at what we've put through our, our surrogates through in South America. For those that, are, that don't understand the IVF process, it's a horrible process for both the surrogate and the egg donor to go through with daily injections and very invasive procedures, not to mention the tolls of pregnancy on one's body. Mm. And what would you like to tell your teenage self? That it will all be okay. Yes, in time this too shall pass. <laughs> yeah, I hope that's a good saying, actually. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing. Um, yeah, it's amazing to think that this year you'll be a dad. Twice over. Twice over. <laughs> um, and I'm sure, yeah, that'll give you so much joy. Two little girls we're having. Two little girls? Okay, yes. yeah. Have you got names picked out? We do. That we're not sharing. Okay. (laughs) Keep a secret. Thank Thank you you. so much. Thank you for your time. You have a wonderful booth here. Yeah. (laughs) This podcast is released every Tuesday and Friday and could not have been possible without the support of our local community partners, Midsummer and the Fair of Victoria portfolio of the Victorian State Government. Throughout the series, you will hear firsthand the successes, hopes, dreams, fears and struggles of diverse members of our community. Pridefinder, the Rainbow Road Trip was a travelling project commissioned during the 2023 Midsummer Festival as part of the State Government's initiative, Victoria's Pride. Helen Thomas, an award-winning creative audio producer, journalist and queer ally, developed a mobile story studio with the purpose of encouraging connection, cultivating empathy and preserving people's experiences. As much of Victoria's queer history relies on verbal recount, Midsummer, Helen and the Pride Finder connected with regionally living LGBTQIA plus Victorians to help capture their unique stories. 
These conversations are frank, honest, and reflect the language, thoughts, history, and opinions of the individual. Views may not be shared by Midsummer or the Victorian State Government. Please keep yourself safe and refer to the show notes for specific triggers related to each episode. If something in this podcast has made you feel uncomfortable or brought up challenging feelings, please seek support from a loved one or from one of the helplines listed at the bottom of the show notes.